And now hear God's holy word, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise You and we certainly give You thanks for Your Holy Word and we ask You to penetrate our hearts with it. Help us to, by Your Spirit, understand what You're communicating and to walk in it. Father, loosen my tongue today so that I might speak with a clear speech and that we all might receive and hear and know and mark and learn what you have taught us. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. People of God, most of you know that I grew up in a uh, military family. My dad was career Air Force and we uh, of course uh, got to move around quite often. Uh, and when I was in, in a when I was a, as, a, as a child, one of the things I loved to do was to dress up in his old uniforms. Whenever he was done with uh, his blues or his BDUs, rather than just throwing them away or giving away, he'd, he'd pass them on to me. So I, I got, over the years as a boy, I got a pretty good stash of uniforms to wear. And when my friends came over, we would watch old World War II movies, and then we would put on, you know, these, these ragtag, you know, bits of uniform, uh, whatever they were, you know, jackets, flight caps, whatever, whatever we had, and then we would go out and play. We'd act out the missions of the movies that we had just seen. We'd either fight against each other or we'd fight imaginary bad guys in the backyard dressed in these clothes that were just way too big for us. They were ridiculously big for us and they didn't match, uh, but in our minds, in our imagination, we were, we were really, you know, uh, tough. And, and really, you know, these mighty warriors in the backyard using uh, pine cones as hand grenades and stuff like that. Now that I'm grown up, uh, I would not, you know, be embarrassed to say that I still dress up in my father's uniform for battle. But the enemies that I fight today are not imaginary, and the father whose uniform I'm wearing is my heavenly father. When Paul gives us in his letter to the Ephesians, when he gives us an inventory of the whole armor of God, what he's describing there is God's armor. The, the armor of God is God's armor. This is what God wears. In Isaiah 59, we read this. Yahweh saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. This is the armor that our heavenly father puts on when he takes up warfare against his enemies 
and our enemies. When he, when he goes to deliver us, this is the cloak and this is the breastplate and this is the helmet that he puts on. Now, this is the armor that he passes on to us. This is the armor that he gives us to wear. It's his armor. And unlike Saul's armor, which didn't fit David, and, and unlike my dad's BDUs, which didn't fit me at all, uh, this uniform, our Heavenly Father's uniform, fits us perfectly. Yahweh is a mighty warrior. How often do we read that he is the Lord of hosts? What does that mean, Lord of hosts? It means he's the Lord of armies. God is the Lord of armies, and his children take after him, and we wear his battle dress into the fray, into the fight. And so when Paul goes down this list, itemizing the weapons and the gear of the armor of God, he's describing the spiritual gifts and the protections that God has given us so that we may fight alongside of him in his warfare. Now, many commentators think that since Paul is under arrest when he's writing this, that he may be at this point when he's, when he's writing this letter uh, chained to a Roman soldier. And so they assume that as he's sitting here wrapping up this letter, he's thinking, well, how do I wrap this up? And he's got this Roman soldier next to him, and then he's kind of going down the inventory of what the, what the Roman soldier's wearing. So he's got a helmet, and he's got a breastplate, and he's got a sword and a shield, and he's got boots. And maybe, maybe I can make spiritual application of all this. But I don't, I don't think that's quite accurate. Um, I'm convinced that there's a much more direct biblical reference for the gear that Paul lists. This isn't the uniform of a Roman soldier that, that Paul is giving us. This is the uniform of a priest. This is a uniform of the men that God called to serve in warfare at his tabernacle, at his holy place. You see, God gave his priests a uniform, and that uniform was a representation of God's own armor. If God wears a breastplate in Isaiah, and if God has a helmet, certainly he gives his priests representative armor that, that reflects his own armor, and these priests are then holy soldiers. If you think of the, the priests who served at the tabernacle and later the temple, you may have in your mind, well, there's kind of these, you know, really holy guys who knew what to do and knew what not to do, but they kind of, they kind of had their heads in the clouds, and, you know, I, I don't know that they were really that useful. But in fact, they're called to be warriors, and God gives them weapons. What were their weapons? Well, principally, their weapons were prayers, and their weapons were psalms, and their weapons were sacrifices. They were holy warriors, and these were the weapons that God had given them. Now, if the high priest, and you know he did, the high priest had a breastplate, why, why does the high priest need a breastplate? I mean, what, what, is, what, is, what war is he fighting? Why is he wearing a uniform? Um, and, and, and Hebrew tells us, that, that God's word is a sword, right? You know that. God, God's word is a sword. And that's militant language. We know what swords do, but it's a sword that does what? It's a sword that cuts apart the joints and the marrow. Again, that's sacrificial language. The priests would have to cut up the sacrificial animals and arrange them on the altar. Um, so, so there are so many of these allusions throughout the scriptures, and we're going to look at a few this morning, that kind of mesh this language of worship with this language of spiritual warfare. And when you put worship and warfare together, they both land in one office, the office of a priest, the office of a holy warrior. And that priest wore a breastplate. That priest, as we see, wore a helmet. That priest wore the gear that Paul lists here. So that's why I'm convinced he's not talking about a Roman soldier. Don't think Roman soldier. Think priest. And if you're thinking priest, well, who are the priests today? 
Well, that's you, right? You're all priests, right? Do you need an intercessor between you and God other than the Lord Jesus? No, Jesus is your intercessor and, and you are priests that God has sent. You, are, you church are the new kingdom of priests. And so this, this holy warfare is your holy warfare. This uniform of battle dress is your uniform for battle. I think this also becomes obvious when we think again through Paul's train of thought. And we're getting close to Ephesians, so this is the last time you'll hear me say this. But I always feel like I need to catch everybody up if you missed one or two and kind of thinking, kind of thinking through where we're, where we're coming from. Paul's not looking up and down a Roman soldier through this section. Uh, through the last several chapters, he's been thinking through Mount Sinai. At the start of Ephesians, we read about our great deliverance from the bondage of death, just as Israel was delivered from the bondage of slavery in, in Egypt. We're led by our greater Moses, Jesus, just as Israel was led by Moses. And under Jesus, we're formed into a new people. We're formed into a, a new nation. Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple. Paul says that in Ephesians. He talks about light and darkness, just as, as we reflect light with the Holy Spirit, pushing back the darkness, just as Moses reflected God's light at Mount Sinai. See, this, uh, if, if we think in terms of what happens in Sinai, we can follow Paul's train of thought throughout the book of Ephesians. And then uh, just as um, you know, Moses gave and delivered to the people the Ten Commandments, so, so Paul reflects on the Ten Commandments right there in the middle of Ephesians. He expounds God's law. He makes applications in Jesus. And then Moses set up captains and leaders over fifties and hundreds and uh, tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands and multitudes. Moses set up hierarchy and order in society. And then we get into that section in Ephesians where Paul is establishing order in marriages and in families and in master-servant relationships. And there we have all this, this language and this instruction on mutual submission which is appropriate because Paul himself is currently under subjugation to Rome. Paul's a prisoner at this point. In many respects, he's worse off than some slaves would have been in ancient Rome. And so he's in, he's in a tight spot and he's not, he doesn't have his freedom and he doesn't have any kind of liberty and he's subjugated to Rome in every possible dimension. So what comes next? What comes after we learn how to submit. And that's what that whole previous section was about, submission in our relationships in life. What comes after we learn how to, how to uh, do what we're told and how to obey? What comes after we've been in prison and we learn how to share in the sufferings of Christ? How to bear injustice and bear cruelty? Well, what happens next in the Exodus after slavery and after the ordering of society is that we suit up in our armor and we're ready to go take dominion in the land of, of Canaan. All the things that happen in Mount Sinai and in slavery in Egypt are preparation for dominion and rule and authority. And so here at Sinai, God gives them a tabernacle. God gives them a priestly order. He sets them up with sacrifices. He uh, gives them vestments. He gives them things they're to wear and do and say. These are, their, these are their weapons of war. And that's what we come to now in Ephesians 6. Paul says, okay, we've, we've, we've got this all fixed up now. Now put on your armor and get ready to go conquer the world. I've already touched on this pattern. Back in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul started this uh, way. He says, uh, I therefore, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness 
and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul reminds them, he, he goes into this, uh, this, this instruction on submission and long-suffering in the context of him being a prisoner. He says, I'm a prisoner, now, now, now submit, now suffer long with each other, now be patient with each other. And, and, and I said, when we studied that, I said, God puts us first in the school of submission. He first puts us in the school of slavery and prison to prepare us for rule. Uh, Joseph was a slave and a prisoner before he took over control of the entire world. Daniel was a slave in the lion's den, and then he takes over the entire world. Jesus was captured and imprisoned. Uh, he he was, was crucified, and then he takes over the entire world. Spending time in prison, spending time in captivity is a prelude to victory. Submission and subjugation is a prelude to victory. And so throughout the book of Acts, everyone keeps getting beaten and thrown in jail at one time or the other. All the apostles go to jail. They all go to prison for the sake of the gospel in the book of Acts. And we get specific stories of Peter and James and John and Paul and Silas being in prison. Now here, Paul is under, uh, under house arrest in Rome. And John, at this very same time, is exiled over in Patmos. What does this mean? Why are we all in jail? Why are we all imprisoned? Well, well, if we know Bible history and we know the way God works, we're about to take another great leap forward. God is preparing us for rule. He's preparing us for conquest through, through these suffering circumstances, through this. And so uh, that comes in a big way after A.D. 70 when Jesus manifests his rule by delivering the final verdict on the old world of the old covenant. He destroys all the elements of the old world in Jerusalem and he burns them with fire. And now the church is unfettered to go into the new heavens and new earth, into the new creation and conquer. And she continues to do that. So all of this is just to help us understand where is, where is Paul's train of thought and what brings him now to this point where he talks about our our, our, our uniform, our dress for battle. Well, we have everything we need now. Since we're on the verge, since we're on the precipice of this great battle, this great warfare, this great conquest, we're ready to take dominion. We're ready to march. We're ready to go conquer the land. We're all set up. Now he, he gives us these, these weapons and protections of our warfare. And he begins by impressing upon us that we are actually in war. Let me, let me go back to that, verse 10, and we'll read just three verses. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. All Christians are discipled all Christians are sanctified. All Christians are brought up in a war zone. We all grew up in a war zone. And we're all raising our children in a war zone. We got married in a war zone. And we continue to live in a war zone. Until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, until that happens, we are at war and that war will not cease. That means the context of Christian living is warfare. We're deluded or seriously misled if we think that we can work out some kind of peace with this present world order. 
And if you've never reckoned with that, if you've never internalized that at a deep level, that we are at war, if you've never really worked through that for yourself, you are going to be shocked when you face opposition. When you face temptation or when evil comes against you and you have to resist it, you're going to say, oh my goodness, what's happening now? This isn't supposed to happen. I'm not supposed to be persecuted. I'm not supposed to be oppressed. I'm not supposed to have to defend my faith or defend truth and righteousness and good things. I'm not supposed to have to do this. Where is this coming from? And you lose sleep and you lose your appetite and you start to worry and your hair falls out because you think, where is this coming from? What did I do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. You're at war. You are living in a war zone. You are growing up and, and raising children in a war zone. And so it shouldn't be a surprise when you realize that our default setting is war against the rulers of the darkness of this age. And Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not the fallen Adamic race. The real battle, the real wrestling is against the fallen angelic powers, the demonic powers that rule over the fallen Adamic race and their systems and their institutions. They, the demonic powers, deceive the, these men and women and lead them into darkness and wickedness. Our, our warfare isn't against them, and it's real easy to hate them or to get resentful toward them. But you understand that they're as much victims as they are perpetrators, right? They're, they're victims of sin themselves. And uh, we're, 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 our job and our warfare is to save them and deliver them from the fire. Paul uses the word wrestle. Uh, which means that, uh, I mean, he's not talking about uh, the, the silly little battles I had in my backyard with pine cones as a kid. He's not talking about, you know, slapping around plastic lightsabers. He's talking about uh, tooth and nail, hand-to-hand -hand combat. He's talking about uh, uh, bone and muscle wrestling with these powers. This is, this is real hand-to-hand, face-to-face combat that he's talking about and he's describing here. We're told that these spiritual enemies in high places are three things. We're told that they're powerful, that they're wicked, that is to say they're not neutral, and that they're cunning very quickly. They're powerful. He calls them powers. When Satan tempted Jesus, Satan said, all you got to do is bow to me and I'll hand over all the kingdoms of this world. Satan had power over the kingdoms of the world so that he could have handed them over to Jesus. At least that was his claim. But Jesus later calls Satan, what does he call him? Jesus said Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, Jesus at the cross decisively won the victory over these powers, but they haven't gotten the memo. They haven't conceded defeat. They have not been utterly destroyed. They have been defeated, but they have not been utterly destroyed. So they continue to exercise power and control. They have real power in the world. Number two, they're wicked. They're called the hosts of wickedness. That means they're not neutral. It's simple to think, and, 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 it, and we kind of fall into this, that there are some institutions and some influences in the world that are completely good in complete submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are other things that are completely evil, and they're, they're really out to get you, and they're really bad. But then there's all this stuff. There's organizations and institutions and philosophies that are just, just neutral. Just, they're just okay. I mean, they're, they're somewhere in between. But the truth is, you either submit everything to the rule of King Jesus, or you don't. There, there, there's nothing in between. There's no neutral ground on that question. Do you submit everything to the rule of King Jesus over all of creation, 
or don't you? How do you, how do you have a neutral response to that question? There's no neutral ground. And there are powers in this world who work to undermine and subvert the rule of King Jesus over everything and cause people to doubt that he rules. So they're wicked. Number three, they're cunning. Paul mentions the wiles of the devil. And instantly you think of wily coyote, right? What was, and he wasn't that wily. He was rather uh, transparent in his uh, uh, efforts to kill the roadrunner. But we talk about real, something that's really wily is something he plots, he schemes, he looks for wicked, uh, he, he looks for weaknesses and he exploits them. He's conniving, he sets snares, he sets traps to trick people into following him. Satan is a wolf that dresses like a sheep. He's, he's the ruler of darkness, but he comes dressed as an angel of light. He's a bully and a beguiler. He operates in the realm of guilt and of manipulation through accusation. So, so don't be ignorant. Understand the enemy that you're up against. They are powerful, they are wicked, and they are cunning. And in order for us to cast down these forces of darkness, in order to defeat God's enemies and our enemies, we need God's armor. And that armor is the armor of a priest. Now remember back in the garden, Adam was commissioned to do what over the garden? To dress it and to keep it. He was there to, to lead his wife and hopefully in the future his family in worship before God. That was, his, that was his duty, that was his role, to stand as a warrior and fight the serpent. Now we can deduct that if Adam had actually defeated the serpent, if he had actually defended his wife successfully, that he would have then ascended to a throne to be able to judge Satan, to rule over Satan. Well, how can we deduce that? Well, because that's exactly what the second Adam does. That's what the second Adam does. Jesus goes out in the wilderness. He does battle with Satan. Jesus faithfully protects the bride as a warrior priest. He lays down his life for her, and then he ascends to his throne, and from there he judges Satan and his hosts. And now Jesus calls us to be warriors with him, to be priestly warriors, to stand and fight so that we will ascend to take dominion over the earth. And in order for us to do that, we have equipment, we have gear, we have a uniform. And then this is where Paul gives us this. He says in verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. The high priest had a sash. He had a linen sash. It was embroidered. Uh, some of your translations may say linen girdle. He had this around his waist and around his loins. And it went on first. Everything went on top of this. So this was his innermost garment. And what Paul is saying is that as you get dressed here, here's the first thing you put on. Here's the thing that's closest to your skin. Here's the foundation. What is it? It's truth. Everything else is going to depend on truth. If you don't have truth, nothing else matters. If you don't have truth, there's no way you're going to have any kind of lasting dominion or rule. Truth is foundational. So always remember that when we worship together, worship is a response to truth. We're gathered here today to worship before God's throne because of the truth that Jesus is king, that Jesus is savior, that Jesus is our shepherd and, and ruler. And friend, these truths are what, are what cause us to praise him and, and give him honor. Worship is a response to truth. Worship is not an effort to crack some code or to, to penetrate the mysteries and find secret truth. Worship is a response to the revelation of truth. And that truth is not just ideas or thoughts. The, the truth is not simply a perspective on the world that's, that's all ironed out. 
Truth is Jesus himself. Well, just Jesus says, I am the truth. So the only way to know truth is to know Jesus. And Paul says, truth is the first thing that you put on. That's where you start. It's a foundational garment. And then he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Who else had a breastplate? Well, of course, the priest. The high priest had a breastplate. And on that breastplate were 12 stones, one each for each tribe of Israel. So that when the high priest ministered before God in the most holy place, when the high priest uh, led in sacrifice and worship and prayers of intercession for Israel, he stood before God with all 12 tribes of Israel on his chest. He represented God's people to God. Uh, and he took Israel with him into the most holy place. They couldn't all go in. They couldn't all go to the innermost uh, chamber. But he went in, and he took Israel with him. Now in Exodus 28, that, that breastplate is called the breastplate of judgment. Why is it called the breastplate of judgment? Well, you remember there was a, there was a place on that breastplate where there were two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, which he used in some way, and we're not really sure how he used it. We have some ideas, but the high priest would use those stones in coordination with the 12 jewels on his breastplate to make judgments regarding Israel, so that when they have to find out, you know, what tribe and what man and, and what family and what, you know, they, they use this in coordination to, to, to understand the will of God, this breastplate of judgment. So Paul says, we put on this breastplate of righteousness, this breastplate of judgment, and in so doing, we take on to ourselves sound judgment, sound wisdom, discernment. Righteousness isn't simply about personal holiness, you know, personal piety. Righteousness is about the outward, external, uh, concrete exercise of prudence, spiritual intelligence based on truth, that, that we, we've got the answers and we have the way of life. That is, that is the breastplate of, of judgment and righteousness. Now, we've got our, our underwear on, we've got our breastplate on, and now we need to march out to battle. And for that marching, we need shoes, we need boots. Remember in the wilderness and leading from Mount Sinai, the priests led Israel on the march and they, they led them from place to place carrying the Ark of the Covenant with them at the vanguard, at the very front. The priests were on point. And there's this great story in 2 Chronicles where King Jehoshaphat was attacked by the Ammonites and the Moabites and uh, King Jehoshaphat calls everybody together. They have, a, have an assembly, they worship and they repent and then and then they go out to battle against the Moabites and the Ammonites, and he puts the priests, the Levites, and the singers all out front. They're out front marching, and then the army, the fighting men, follow in, in behind them. And the musicians are singing, and the Levites are singing, give thanks to Yahweh for his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, God's people fight their battles in worship first. We fight our battles in prayer First, we lead with worship. And when our ways please the Lord, He destroys our enemies before us. He does the dirty work. He does the hard work. When we fight our battle in prayer and in worship, He then destroys our enemies. And so when Jehoshaphat's army, led by the priests that got to the battlefield, the Moabites and the Ammonites had already wiped each other out. They had already, they had already fought and they found reasons to uh, be offended at each other and they killed each other. They destroyed each other. I kind of think that still happens, right? When God's people are serious about worship and they're, they're mature in their prayers and we're fighting our battles here, 
God confounds our enemies. Our enemies, they can't have any kind of unity. They can't hold together and everything collapses under its own weight. He still does this. So what kind of shoes do we need when we march out leading in worship? Well, verse 15 says, having, your sh- having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our boots are the gospel of peace. That's what we're going to use in our warfare against the world. Our warfare is preaching peace to the world. Now that sounds kind of inconsistent. Our warfare is preaching peace to the world, but that's exactly what God calls us to do. Our warfare is preaching peace, and if they don't hear it, God will judge them. But what we're going to keep doing is preaching peace. Now, what, is that, what do I mean by peace? Does that mean just getting along with everybody and letting it go and, and just, you know, just chilling out with everybody? No, we're talking about peace between man and God. We're saying there is a way for you to be at rest in your relationship with your Creator, and that's found in Jesus. Also, peace between mankind and man, that, that brother and brother. There's only one way to have that kind of peace, and that's in the man, Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can have peace. And that's the gospel of peace, that unity and rest and Sabbath are only found in Jesus. That's the message we preach. Now remember, in the wilderness, Israel's shoes never wore out that whole time in the wilderness. So God wants us to conquer the world, and he gives us shoes that never wear out, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Those are our boots. Now we're marching. Now we're, on the, now we're on the way and we know that we're going to meet some opposition. We need some kind of defensive weapons. And so in verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. We march out on offense, but we know that we're going to get shot at. And what protects us from the fiery darts of doubt of accusation, of fear that are fired by the enemy. What protects us from these things is faith, and, and not just a generic thing called faith. Do you have faith? Yeah, I got faith. I believe. What do you believe in? Uh, I don't know. Stuff. I don't know. Faith. I've got faith. It's not just generic faith, but trust in God. God is our shield, and we're trusting Him to protect us against the attacks that are bound to come. Again, we're not surprised when we get the arrows fired at us. We're not surprised when we get shot at. That's what the shield is there for. In Genesis 15, remember when Lot got uh, kidnapped, there were nine kings fighting with nine armies, and Lot got kidnapped, and then Abraham pursued uh, the four armies that had captured Lot, and Abraham, with 318 men, defeated and plundered these other four armies. He got Lot back, and he got a great bounty. He got a great loot back from, from that victory. Now, if you're living in the ancient world and you're kind of this uh, shepherd Bedouin king, and uh, as Abraham would have been, a mighty man uh, with, his, with his household army of 318 men, and you just defeated four other kingdoms, and you had all of this loot, you had all this bounty, that would have painted a real big target on your back, that somebody's going to come after you. And so Abraham is real nervous. Abraham's worried about what's going to happen. And in Genesis 15, the Lord sends his word in a vision, and he says, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And that's where Abram expresses faith and it's accounted to him for righteousness as we read later. But God says, don't worry about these guys. You're with me. I'll protect you. Do you think that you beat all those armies with 318 men on your own? You think that just, you're just that good? Is that what happened? Or do you think I had something to do with it? I'll protect you. Our faith is our defensive weapon. You can go into battle without worry and fear. You can trust God and move out in faith, knowing inevitably when those fiery darts come that 
they're not going to penetrate uh, your armor. God is your shield. You will be protected. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. On your head is the helmet of salvation. The high priest had a ceremonial helmet. He wore this turban or this miter of sorts, and it had a plate of gold on his forehead, a plate of pure gold. And on that plate was written holiness to the Lord. And, and, and this was mentioned in Exodus 28, right where we get all these instructions for the priests, where uh, we get these real tough warnings that if you don't dress and behave like a priest in the holy presence of Yahweh. I mean, you're going before God himself. And if you goof off or you do something uh, uh, sideways, you're not taking this seriously, you're going to die. So you're real careful about how you dress and how you act in God's presence so you won't die. It's serious business being a mortal man going into the presence of God. So God expected his priests to approach him in a certain way and cover the forehead, which is mentioned in the curse that, that, that God delivered to Adam, remember, uh, on the sweat of your forehead, you'll eat all the days of your life. So the forehead is connected with the curse. And over the forehead comes this gold plate that says, holy to the Lord. This forehead would be covered by the holiness of God. Now, where this comes into play later is in uh, 2 Chronicles 26. We read about the arrogance of King Uzziah. King Uzziah burst into the temple because he wanted to offer incense on the altar. And, and the priests are all yelling at him and says, don't, stop, don't go in there. You don't know what you're doing. But he goes in there anyway. And of course, he's not wearing the helmet of salvation. He's not wearing the priestly helmet with the, with the gold plate on his forehead. And so God strikes him on the forehead with leprosy. And he has leprosy the rest of his life. And he dies later on. Why did God strike him on the forehead? Maybe it was because he wasn't wearing the helmet of salvation. We wear God's salvation on our heads, on our brow, the salvation which has removed the curse. We are protected from God's wrath uh, towards sin and all forms of judgment and the curse with with the helmet of salvation. That means that Jesus has taken the curse from us. Jesus has taken our death from us. He's taken uh, away the curse. Verse 17 uh, B, the, the, the second part of it. And the sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. God's angelic messengers carry swords. Remember the cherubim that were placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden? They had a flaming sword. There was a flaming sword there. The angel that appears to Balaam is holding a sword. Uh, as, as Joshua drew near to Jericho, he saw an angel with a drawn sword. As I, as I said, God of hosts means gods of army, God of armies. And those armies are armies of angels, and they all have swords. And whenever we see a sword, it's not like it's tucked away you know, in the, in the scabbard. They're always holding it. They're holding the sword when, when we see it. They're drawn. They're ready to fight. In Revelation 19, Jesus is riding on a white horse, leading the angelic armies, uh, and they're also on white horses, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword that strikes the nations, and we read that sword is his word. So if Jesus is armed with a sword that is his word, and his angels all have swords, we are his angelic messengers on earth, we're his earthly messengers. The word angel just means messenger. We're his messengers. We are his army of men and women. And so if we want things to be done on earth as they're done in heaven, then we, like his angelic hosts, are always at the ready. We have our swords drawn. 
We, we carry his word in us, in our lips and in our minds and in our hearts. So we're always prepared to apply it, to put it in action, to speak it, to sing it, to proclaim that this is what God has said. And so when we go to conquer, when we go to claim the nations for Jesus, we press his crown rights into every sphere of life. We do so with the sword of the truth of the word of God. So when Israel displayed right worship before God, when, when she put away her idols, when she quit doing things her own way, when she cut out the personal emotional stimulation of Baal worship and golden calf worship, when she did all these things, God gave her the victory. Her enemies fled before her. Israel flourished and the nations came to see what was going on. But the enemy doesn't like that. That doesn't really make the enemy happy. The enemy doesn't want God's people to flourish. So he attacks everything that Paul has set up in Ephesians. Everything that God has set up, they seek to tear down. And we're running out of time, but I wanted to take you backwards through Ephesians and say that the relationships between masters and servants, they want to destroy that. Relationships between fathers and sons and parents and children. Uh, these powers want to destroy that. Husbands and wives, the powers want to bring that to nothing. All of this, that he, wants to, he wants to tear all of this down. He wants us to ignore the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to deliver us, to secure our redemption. He wants us to ignore all of this in ingratitude and contempt. And, and these, these fiery darts of doubt uh, uh, hit us and, and cause us and undermines everything that, that, that we've established, we've read, and we've understood so far in the book of Ephesians. To cause us to doubt, in, in other words, do I really belong to Jesus? Am I really his? Will he really do what he says that, that he'll do? Can I trust him? Is this all true? And to combat this assault, to combat this great campaign against us and our faith and our children. To combat this, to beat back the domination of all the powers of darkness in the world, God dresses us as warrior priests. So here's how you get dressed every morning. You gird yourself with truth. You put on sound judgment as a breastplate. You put on the gospel of peace, which never wears out. You put that on your feet. You use faith as a shield. You have salvation on your heads. The very word of God is your sword. And with that, you are fully equipped to fight the battle that God has put you in. We don't rely on the weapons of worldly warfare. Every time Israel you know, goes after the, the chariots and horses from Egypt, they're rebuked for that. It doesn't come, it doesn't amount to much. So take and put on the armor that he's given you. He's given you his armor. The whole armor of God is his armor and he's put it on you. Just as I loved wearing my dad's uniform, because I wanted to match my dad, I wanted to be like him. So here, here you go. Be like, be like your father. Wear his battle gear. Wear his dress. You don't have to buy it. It's already yours. You don't have to go looking for it. It's yours. He gave it to you. It's yours. So wear it. Don't wear the uniform of the enemy. Don't gird yourself with lies and doubt. Don't, don't, don't use ingratitude as a breastplate. You know, don't use philosophy of men as, as your sword. This, don't, don't dress in the uniform of the enemy. And you're dressed for the occasion. You're dressed in battle gear. Saints of God, you are dressed in battle gear because you're at war. You think, well, I'm dressed for battle. Is this, is this like showing up to a wedding in a bathing suit? I mean, is this, like, is this like showing up to a birthday party for a kid in a tuxedo? Is this, am I out of place? No. 
All of this is yours because you are at war. Never forget that you are at war. You are ordained as a warrior priest, and God calls you to fight. Well, we stop right in the middle of one of Paul's sentences, but we're going to pick up right there next week, and we'll read the rest of this letter to the Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for investing us with this battle gear, and we pray that we would not only acknowledge that, yes, we are in fact in conflict, but that we would have the strength and the courage to fight, and that we would fight using your weapons, not our own philosophy or opinions, but that we would fight in the way that that you fight, using what you've given us uh, as our weapons of war. Strengthen us, Father. Make us a warrior people who raise up warrior children who fight for your kingdom until the whole earth is filled with your knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And we look forward to that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.